I'm Becky. I'm Nicole. And this is a Twisted Sisters podcast. So it's February already. Wow. Um, it's it's uh, mid-February already. Yeah, it's mid-February already. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so fun little Easter egg from last week's episode. Um, when I was like not feeling great and didn't go to work that day, it's because I had COVID and didn't know it yet. So fun. <laughs> um, but uh, that was, we recorded that uh, two or three weeks ago by now. Um, and uh, so I'm better um in fact like was it yesterday i think i don't know it was a few days ago when i was like oh i feel like i I, like i have energy back again that's nice (laughs) so yeah it's uh wasn't fun it wasn't like i mean it was like a bad cold really or not a a bad cold but just like a extended cold i guess but yeah um so, uh, Nicole, let's just get into what we're drinking, even though I had to go on all of that little <laughs> tangents. No tangents in the, uh, in the uh, unraveling today, because time's limited, but tangents right now, I guess. <laughs> I feel like somehow we need that every week. Our guest yeah. is like, I have 45 minutes. <laughs> like, let's this is this all thing. I have. Okay. This is all we can have. All right. I'm logging off right at five. Regardless of if we're done or not. Like, okay, okay, we can do this. Yeah. Because I need boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you got? Anyway, mm-hmm. I am drinking uh, a iced coffee concoction because mm-hmm. I did not take my meds today, but needed a little pick-me-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not take my meds because I, I threw out my back a couple weeks ago and have been having nerve pain. Mm. And last night it hit me at about one o'clock mm. and I could not sleep. So uh, I took a I took a nice nap before this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, mm, we'll have a little iced coffee. It's uh, shaken with two shots because I don't fuck around of <laughs> <laughs> vodka, mm-hmm. a little maple syrup and some Flavor God's buttery cinnamon roll. Ooh, that and sounds great. Is, it is delicious. I am drinking it out of my uh, equity brewing cup. Yay. Yeah, I'm still I need to email them again about being on the podcast. We just kind of lost it's, let, it's that been, trail off <laughs> back a few months ago. Well, the holidays and, and I yeah. think it just kind of messed with everybody. Like this week's guest was like a a I found her book. Mm-hmm. I found her. We went let's do this right before your book gets launched. She's mm-hmm. like, okay, because I can do it like before if you want to. And we went, no, let's do this right before your book gets launched. And mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah. Like sometimes you get lucky with people who are super uh, excited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was she was super excited to uh, sit down yeah. with us, which yeah. I feel incredibly honored for. So, And we are going to have her back on to talk about some things that some other things we're interested in too. But that will Absolutely. be coming up hopefully next month. So, the, um, again, the palate cleanser episode. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I am drinking a um, 
Sonic, a local Oklahoma company, an Oklahoma uh, incorporation. <laughs> um, uh, but I do love me some Sonic. So yeah, uh, hard seltzer. They have hard seltzers now. Um, this I one had is read the limeade. This and mm-hmm. forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, they. Uh, an additional like local connection is they were canned by Coop Aleworks here in Oklahoma City, which is a local brewery. So um, we had gotten Bruce had gotten the um, tropical um, assortment first, and we're like, yeah, these are okay. And then this assortment is the um, the classic. So it's the original limeade, they have the original lemonade, um, they have lemon berry and uh, cherry limeade. Um, and so I've got the original limeade now and I really like it. I also really like the lemon berry, which was, um, my drink. The lemon berry slush was my drink in college. That's what I would, that, <laughs> you know, in my little like Nazarene university, there's a Sonic just down the street. So we'd go over there, get lemon berry slushes before we went to basketball games. So yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. Like, like We have a Sonic two blocks away so uh we get sonic a lot mm-hmm. also i'm a glutton for their grilled cheese i don't even care mm-hmm. i will pay the 2.99 for two pieces of texas toast with mm-hmm. some american cheese on it mm-hmm. and feel no shame uh i love their tots and their um cheddar peppers um and their mozzarella sticks are delicious yeah um uh, greg and my mom are big fans of the chili cheese coney dogs okay I, I'm very particular about hot about hot dogs, so like, yeah, I if they are I I've never had one from there because like, yeah, I have to know that it's like I guess like the all beef hot dog or whatever the ones that like that are more like sausages than are like um, Oscar Mayer <laughs> like like, <laughs> like a, a like a good Nathan's all beef hot yes, dog yeah those are fine I and like those. the kind and the the ones that snap when you bite into them mm-hmm. yeah like. So ones that are, yeah, like ones that are more like a bratwurst than a, than a Oscar Mayer Frank or whatever. <laughs> when, when it was something that I ate, the Nathan's all beef hot dogs mm-hmm. from uh, New York state are probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think one other thing there. Really... Oh, I used to really like their onion rings, but I don't like them as much anymore, but. Oh, I uh... love them because they're like, and here's, and this is why a lot of people don't like them. The batter mm-hmm. is sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like they remind me of like it. Whenever I go to Sonic, it makes me feel like I'm eating fair food uh-huh. without uh-huh. actually 100%. having to go to the fair. Exactly, and it take it's almost because the batter is just a little sweet. Like they add vanilla or something to mm-hmm. it. They have to, mm-hmm. no and it's just like this all encompassing fair experience when you bite into the crispy sweet mm-hmm. shell, and then you get and it's always big fat onion rings like it's not this like oh, yeah. is there an onion in here or not oh yeah definitely but they yeah. are a little hard on the mouth mm-hmm. yeah so like you have to be committed to eat them right exactly <laughs> so. yeah i i do i have a i have a high high passion for the sonic uh, <laughs> if that was the only fast food okay let's be honest it's really the only fast food restaurant i eat at mm-hmm. um, occasionally greg will get me curly fries from arby's but Oh That's yeah, it. that is that is the extent of my my uh, my fast food eating. But mm-hmm. like, if Sonic was the only existing fast food restaurant, I could die happy. We eat uh, we eat Qdoba a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna lie. If we had a Qdoba close, I would yeah. <laughs> because when we lived in Greeley, I would, Greg would text me 
about mm-hmm. the time I'd get off work and go, you want to go to Qdoba for dinner? Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, but I will because it's delicious. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, oh, but I was going to ask. Yeah. Do they, in the tropical assortment, is there an ocean water? Yes. <gasps> yes. Ocean water. Um, there is, or uh, I want to say it's like, Orange pineapple, maybe then mango guava and um, melon medley. And is the ocean water as hideously blue as it is when you buy it? Uh, no, I don't think they. I think they're uncolored, all of them. Oh, thank Jesus! Yeah, I, my body does not process blue dye well. Yeah, I. It just I, does not end well for me. So I the fact it, that it's not blue would make me very happy. I mean, I haven't, I haven't poured any of them out into a glass. So like I just. But with the ocean again. water though, you would know because your teeth and your tongue would turn blue. Oh yeah. No, no. And it's no not, it. and it's not that strongly flavored either. Like it doesn't, none of them are like super sweet um, because they only, they're not like. So, it, so you're saying it's not like I ordered a large and asked them to put it in a Route 66 cup so I could top it with vodka. Correct. Okay. Not that I've done that. Correct. Yes, it's, yeah, it's more like um, you ordered a kid size and put it in a regular and topped it with vodka, <laughs> like, or, okay. or not even, or like, and topped it with, seltzer and, well, and topped then... it with seltzer and vodka, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um yeah, they're, I mean, they're flavored kind of similarly to the Spindrift, except okay. with, with alcohol, um, because they have one grin. One gram of sugar, 100 calories, 5% alcohol. So, like, they're sweetened just enough, but not. I need to see if I can find. Okay, I need to finish the alcohol that's in my fridge because this is what happens. We talk about something and I'm like, I have to go find that. And I do. (laughs) And then I have two of them and I'm like, Uh I'm just going to drink wine because I'm a middle aged white woman. That's what Uh, we do. Right? Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Okay, well, let's um, go on to fangirling. And I. I told you that I was going to add something, but I think I will wait until next week because it actually works really well with next week's topic. So, okay. I mean, it works with this week's topic, but it also works with next week's topic. Well, and, so cool. And mine would also work with next week's topic. Yeah. So. But you are more um, excited. So I am really excited about yeah. mine because, yeah. and, and if you are with me on the socials, you've probably already seen me post something about this. Um, but I just read the memoir Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauer. Oh, yeah. I highly, highly recommend it. It's um, she is a Korean American and it's her story. It starts out a little bit talking about her journey being Korean American, growing up Korean American. And then it becomes the journey of her trying to become more in touch with the Korean side that she has pushed away from when her Korean mother gets uh gets cancer and the whole journey of losing her mother and mm-hmm. um it's it's very well written very very poignant um and funny in parts which it needs to be um and i honestly had no idea who michelle zauner was um she is the the voice behind the band japanese breakfast oh yeah, yeah. which i just uh i had just put into my rotation after reading the book uh-huh. um and it's it's definitely not my normal musical style, but it is fun to listen to. Like I can keep it on low at work because it's a little synthy, little bleep bloopy. It's not heavy, but it's not tiring, if that makes sense. It, like it doesn't make you tired. Mm-hmm. But all that to say, she 
after her mom dies and she realizes she didn't get a chance to learn how to cook all the things she wanted to cook, um, she talks about sitting in her kitchen crying, uh, making kimchi while watching uh, creator Munchi on mm-hmm. TikTok. And it's uh, M-A-A-N-G-C-H-I, Munchi. Um, she doesn't have a whole lot of presence on TikTok, but her uh, her kimchi video is great. But if you go to her, if you just search her, you'll get her blog, her YouTube channel, her books. Um, I may or may not have spent more time than I should admit at work <laughs> yesterday going down a munchy rabbit hole instead of actually working. Uh but she has so many amazing recipes, and she is just a trip to watch. Mm-hmm. And she makes Korean cooking approachable and way less scary than I thought it was going to be. Um, I was debating getting one of her books, but all the reviews said if you follow her socials, it's pretty much you, you get everything. Mm-hmm. Unless you want it in a hard copy book. So uh, I sent Becky the kimchi, vegetarian kimchi recipe yeah. because we've... On multiple occasions, talked about her what wanting to do? make kimchi. Yes. And this one actually felt like an approachable way to make kimchi mm-hmm. uh, without needing a whole ton of extra stuff. Right. That I would probably just have to make a whole bunch of kimchi to use because there's not anything else that I use those things in. <laughs> so I will yeah. say that the uh, chili paste, we always keep a tub of that in the fridge. I use it for a lot of stuff yeah well that's Um, the thing that i would keep but like when it comes to like the traditional kimchi ingredients mm -hmm. like some of the like fermented shrimp paste and stuff like that and and that's why i like because she has she has the version that has the anchovy paste Mm -hmm. and all of the fermented fish and shrimp Mm -hmm. but what i sent you was the vegetarian version exactly Uh, she also has a white kimchi that sounds delicious which again is also super super uh approachable Cool. Okay. And she gives reasonable substitutions if you live in an area like I do, mm-hmm. where it's harder to find uh, some of the ingredients. Mm-hmm. But she also gives links to where you can buy online. If it, she gives um, where you can find local Asian supermarkets, mm-hmm. where you can find uh, either through Amazon because you know she's got to make money. I get mm-hmm. it. Um, or other local or other retailers you can purchase from online, like hmart.com. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep this all tied together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I actually figured out the hmart uh, is not far from my dad's house in Aurora, which is right down the street from an all-you-can-eat hot pot restaurant that just opened up. Oh, so my goodness. Wow. I'm see if I can convince my dad, because I know Greg will not want to go, and mm-hmm. I do not know if I can convince my dad to go or not, mm-hmm. but if he will uh, meet me down there so I can do some shopping at H-Mart and then have all-you-can-eat hot pot with my dad. Uh, <laughs> so I'm really excited for that. That sounds great. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yes, Munchie. She is, she is my new favorite. Like, because I'm trying to decolonize my kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to cook outside of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and trying to embrace traditional ways of making things instead of Americanizing yeah. everything mm-hmm. that um, she is. She is my new favorite. I, she she will not replace Bryant Terry. Bryant Terry is my favorite. Uh-huh. And I will die on this hill. He is the best person ever. Uh-huh. I want to meet him someday. Michael W. Twitty. Mm hmm. Someday I will get you on this podcast. So we will do it. Uh, 
Michael W. Twitty has a new book coming out called Kosher Soul, which I'm oh. super stoked for. Okay. So, um, so it's just going to be me fangirling about cookbook authors, I think. Yeah. It sounds good. Um, but uh, that comes out in August. So mm. hopefully uh, I can convince him to come talk to us. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> uh, I actually kind of want to see if we can get friend of the show, Sean Ose, on uh, yeah. to talk uh, talk with us when we talk to Michael Twitty because uh, he he converted to Judaism recently mm-hmm. and just went through the like the final stages of the process of conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Michael W. Twitty is also uh, a convert to Judaism. Mm-hmm. So it would be a wonderful conversation. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, those two men definitely sit in the top of my list of favorite cookbook authors. But Mungchi, mm-hmm. definitely, she is uh, the Korean mom slash grandma that you never knew you needed. Yeah, the video. Oh, she, <laughs> she and or her editor or whoever it is has a great sense of humor too. Because mm-hmm. she, at one point, she was talking about. So she was saying that um, I think you put in garlic, onion, and ginger. And so she says, okay, so you blend these up in your food processor, but if you don't have a food processor, you can use whatever you have to crush them. And then on this screen, it was written, uh, accept your teeth, LOL. (laughs) I was like, thank you. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, she's very, yeah, she, exactly. She is like a a auntie, your grandma. Um, and she, uh, she says, okay, so you do this, or you can do this and this, or you can do that. It's like, yeah, it's, she is very inclusive. And just like having a vegetarian kimchi recipe is an inclusive thing to do mm-hmm. too, because uh, like, and like she said, she's like, I'm not a vegetarian, but if I have people over who are, I can know that this, I can make this, mm-hmm. have this kimchi ready and I can know that I can serve it to them. And that is um, hospitality to say, hey, I have kimchi that you can eat. And it's like, yes, I love that. And it's and, you know, and I when it comes to fish, I'm way less particular about mm-hmm. sticking to it. So I'm I guess technically I'm more pescatarian. Yeah. Um, but like. The, the, I actually made ramen with fish sauce the other night because mm-hmm. I forgot I had fish sauce. And I'm like, oh, my God, that adds a, a – it's a bizarre depth of flavor, but it is delicious. Yeah. Because it's like – it's one of those flavors you just and, – and this is, I think, the case in a lot of, of Asian cooking overall. Mm-hmm. There is a depth of flavor that you cannot describe, but if it's not there, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely, like, the, the fish sauce or the fermented uh, fish paste are things that if you don't add it in, sometimes you really do notice it's not mm-hmm. there. Mm, yeah. But if you didn't know what it was, you would just know it tasted good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's I love listening to her talk because her her videos are like sitting in the kitchen with somebody's mom or grandma or auntie. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and this is how you do this. And this is how you do this. But mm-hmm. you can also do it this way. And yeah. we really don't measure, but if I were to measure, it's probably this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm a big not measure person. So like knowing that it's like one handful of this mm-hmm. and one handful of this. And yeah. I'm like, my hand's probably twice her size. So I should do mm-hmm. a half a handful. Uh, that uh, uh, Another, um, sorry, I still have a little bit of gunk in my throat. Um, that's another bit of... Uh, or another point of connection between you and Bruce, because he's also a not really measure kind of person. And 
<laughs> and I am. <laughs> no, who's surprised by that? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the few things that I'm very good at being uh, loosey-goosey about mm-hmm. is because I, I cook by smell and by taste. Mm-hmm. And by sight, because I'm like, mm-hmm. I, oh, that's not the right color. What does it need? Oh, it needs this because yeah, it needs this color or it doesn't smell right. What does it need? It needs more acid. It needs more sweet. It needs more yeah. fat or, it it, or something. It doesn't taste right. It needs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do that, too, but it uh, it also depends on what I'm making. If it's something that I've made a lot of times, then, yeah, I'll be like, well, OK, that, 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 that. But like and. And also I've been cooking for a long time. So even if I have measured things and I taste it, I'm like, oh, it needs more of this. I'll do that. But um, I and I guess also Bruce did get to uh, learn a little bit more about measuring when he was baking in 2020. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and ba- so, baking is something that you have to be a little more. That is very with. different. I yes. will. I, I will cater to that. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm if I am making a baked good, I will measure. Which which might be part of my my um, whole thing about measuring because I did um, grow up learning baking a lot more than more than cooking I guess like um, so like my mom really was into baking a lot and I baked with her so maybe that's my thing um, and then also getting used to things too I like I like going by the recipe first and then once I've done it I'm like okay this is how it can be modified unless. Unless I see a recipe and like, that makes no sense. I'm going to do it this way because mm-hmm. <laughs> I did that back at Thanksgiving. <laughs> in, in my defense, I do try really hard to stick to the recipe, especially mm-hmm. if it's culturally something that is not mine. Yeah, this was like this. I think I, I may have told you or the tavern or someone about the like pumpkin cake that my brother-in-law yes. requested and it was it wasn't that it was a different culture it was that it was a different time I think I yes. feel like it probably was from like the 40s or 50s when there was rationing or something because the some of the ingredients I had never heard of and the proportions were way off <laughs> for what I would expect so I'm like in that case I'm like okay I have an idea for what this is supposed to be I'm going to modify it as such <laughs> But yeah, uh, but yes, when it's a when it is a um, a recipe from another culture, yes, following the recipe is, I would say, the most um, respectful. Mm-hmm. And I know you know that's something that Bryant, I can't remember if it's Bryant Terry or Michael W. Twitty says is, and I think it's Bryant Terry, follow the recipe to the letter the first time you do it. Yeah. We've worked hard to make this accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Once you get the idea of what it's supposed to be like, alter it for your taste. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And that's and that's something Munchie talks about, too, because she, I, you, you put chili paste in everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is definitely not for everybody. Right. Um, and in certain proportions, like I love stuff super hot. Mm-hmm. The rest of my family does not. Mm-hmm. So, and Greg likes a different kind of spicy than I do. So oh, I have yeah, yeah. to be really aware of how much I use. Yeah. Yeah. Like my accidentally too spicy tomato soup I made one night. <laughs> um, okay. Do you think we should get into the unraveling? I think we should get into the unraveling. This is um, a good conversation. It is. And before we do, I'm just going to say that um, go, to, if you have not already, go to our Instagram. Um, at Twisted Sisters, um, we are going to be giving away um, one of uh, Reverend Zay's books. 
um, the book that we um, talked about today, A Complicated Choice. I've learned it. Yay. Um, and uh, so you'll find the parameters there on how to enter. And I said that very much like a scientist. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, so for our unraveling today, we have with us the Reverend Katie Zay, I believe. Is that how it's pronounced? That's right. Yeah. Perfect. Um, and she has written a book um, that we were really interested in. And it is actually, when this releases, I believe it's um, releasing on Tuesday in a few days. Um, so um, we have her on to talk about that and her uh, interest in the topic and journey of writing the book, because even reading it, it's uh, clear that it was uh, quite a time to decide to write a book and interview people. So um, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my first thought when I heard about you, Katie, is that um, you're a female Baptist minister. Um, and so I uh, did a little bit of searching on how that happens. Um, but would you tell us your story of becoming a, uh, a woman who is a Baptist, ordained Baptist minister or an ordained minister in a Baptist church? <laughs> sure. I have not always been Baptist. I think that's important to know. I yes. actually was not raised in any faith tradition, but came to be part of the United Methodist Church as a young or an older elementary school kid when I went to church with my grandmother and went to seminary, stayed United Methodist, ended up working for the United Methodist Church after seminary and just considered myself a lifelong United Methodist. In some ways, I, I definitely am. But as I was following the politics of the church, and not only were they not inclusive of LGBTQIA plus people, but also were kind of going back on their stances on reproductive health rights and justice, I felt like I couldn't stay part of that denomination anymore. Mm -hmm. And as a Methodist, we make jokes about Baptists a lot, especially in the South. I grew up in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so I was a little bit hesitant to even go to a Baptist church, but turns out there's lots of different kinds of Baptists. And there was this very <laughs> progressive congregation in Raleigh, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard amazing things about it. And I went and my first Sunday, I'll just do like this quick story because I think it's like really cute. I sat down next to this woman. She said, oh, are you new? I said, yes. I said, it's a little weird. I'm United Methodist, but I'm here in a Baptist church. And she says, well, honey, I'm Jewish. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I need to get over myself. So <laughs> Poland Memorial Baptist Church in Raleigh is a historically progressive um, Baptist church. They're part of the Alliance of Baptists, which formed in response to the conservative overtaking of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1990s and like 1980s. And this church actually got kicked out of every part of the Southern Baptist church, which I think is kind of badass. Uh -huh. And so, um, I hadn't thought about ordination until I was part of that congregation. Cause I'd always felt like I sort of had to be, um, a bit, uh, I don't want to use the term in the closet, but like I had to be kind of mm -hmm. secretive about my work. Cause I do work in abortion rights, mm -hmm. but there I felt like, Oh, this is actually a community where I can talk about that. And this is actually a place where they would see it as real ministry and a real call, which I had always felt, but had never been affirmed by a community of faith. Mm. And I, I went to my pastor and I said, look, I really feel like I want to get ordained to this work and formed an ordination committee. And they were so incredibly kind and gracious to me and affirmed my call to be doing the work that I do to accompany people through their reproductive journeys, mm -hmm. including terminating pregnancies. 
And that's how I got ordained a Baptist. And I will tell you what, there are many Baptists who do not like the fact that I'm ordained into this work. So it's kind of fun, actually. It's like a little bit, um, yeah, it's just, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to have because it, it totally blows up people's perceptions of what it means to be a Baptist minister. And I love that. Yeah. And I feel like you fit right in with us because we both are like, hey, you don't like what we're doing? Sorry. This is what we're what we feel is right. It. Yeah. We're going to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So t- is this your first book that you've written or have you written books before? This is my second book. Your second book? Um, yeah. My first book is called Women Rise Up. It's about women in the Bible and connecting it to today's struggle for gender equality around the world. So I take um, ancient stories and connect them to our stories today. Fabulous. Have to read that as well. Bo- both of your books are on order at my uh, the library I work at. So Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Uh, I, I have this little corner of our nonfiction uh, new section right now that is, I call it Nicole's Subversive Corner because it has- <laughs> We all um, need one of this. <laughs> yeah. It has a chunk of books that I and one of my other very progressive co-workers have worked really hard to pick out recently. Um, and I'm impressed at how many of them have actually checked out because I live in a very rural conservative community. Mm. Um, so I know that we, pe- we, I have people out here somewhere. I just mm-hmm. haven't met them yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But connecting through words, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about your um, your new book, and um, I like I have already forgotten the name of it. And I was just reading it. I'm <laughs> oh, so it. sorry. This is my this is my brain. Tell us about your book and um, what led you to write this one. My book is called A Complicated Choice, and the subtitle is Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. Mm -hmm. So as I was talking about before, I really feel like my call to ministry, or I know my call to ministry happened within the walls of an abortion clinic where I was volunteering Mm -hmm. when I was in seminary. And so my journey in this work has always been very much about real people and accompanying people through their journey, like before, during, and after procedures, whether that's the immediate aftermath or years down the, down the road. Uh, so I've, I've always felt it's like a deeply human experience to, to have an abortion. Um, and then I got to, you know, working and I now am the CEO of the religious coalition for reproductive choice, um, which is actually the organization that introduced me to this work when I was a seminary student. But, you know, in management, you get really disconnected from often you can get very disconnected from, you know, the, the real life work. people mm-hmm. behind behind the work. And I was feeling a little bit disconnected mm-hmm. and I wasn't thinking about writing a book because, hello, it was 2020. It was like <laughs> June of 2020. My kid had been home for four months mm-hmm. and but the opportunity to write came up. I had like I just had the opportunity and I pitched a book that ended up not being the book that I wrote. And my editor said, no, we want you to write this book. And I said, okay, um, yeah, this is the book. This is the book that I'm supposed to write. This is the book I'm scared to write, but this is the book that I'm supposed to write. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I really wanted to do was show the humanity behind abortion stories. And this is not, you know, really a book about convincing anyone of their position. It's mm-hmm. really about teaching ourselves, how to examine our internalized abortion stigma, because we all have it Mm -hmm. no matter what, and how to respond to people's full stories with compassion and also create space for stories that don't fit in between what I think are the two scripts that are the public 
abortion story. Either abortion mm-hmm. is terrible, it's the worst thing you've ever done, you regret it, or it was that, you know, I had no doubts about it. It was so important for me. Like I never, I never think, think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And those are re- legit stories, but there are a whole bunch that don't fit. And right. I knew that because I had a journey alongside so many people who felt like they didn't fit into those two scripts, especially mm-hmm. pro-choice people who felt like, well, I can't share about my abortion experience because if I say that I had some sadness about it, or I felt grief about it, or I felt even like some regret at some point, then I'm going to be seen as like a traitor to the movement. Mm-hmm. I just thought this is not good. Like people feel isolated and we're not creating space for people's full stories and full humanity mm-hmm. and its complexity to be part of the narrative. And I feel like as people of faith in particular, that's a gap that we could work to fill mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, we are about stories and telling stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I decided to write this particular book. I had no idea at the time where we would be politically when the book came out, mm-hmm. but I think it is very divinely timed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the, the part that hit me in, in one of those uncomfortable, I need to look at this kind of ways. And I hadn't thought about it because I've always been, I, I was raised by a very open progressive woman. Um, I've always been like, everyone can choose, but mm-hmm. you know, you have that internalized you know, when when it comes to me, how am I going to feel about this? And I realized how much of that internalized was, well, I don't, I don't know if this is for me. I don't think this is for me, but it's cool if it's for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really looking at how that mentality is just as harmful because mm-hmm. you have to, to deconstruct that idea that there is a right and a wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there's an absolute right and wrong in this Thank situation. You. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and who is was, abortion for, and who is it not? Right. And what, like those narratives that we have to mm-hmm. interrogate. Why don't we? Why don't we think we're part of that? Mm-hmm. What is that about? It's mm-hmm. a lot about racism, sexism, classism, mm-hmm. right? All of those things. And it's you know growing up in a very white, very evangelical. Well, where I grew up was was less than that, but where I've lived for the last twenty years has been very white, very evangelical, very conservative. And I don't sit in that mold. So, I mean, I've always been the outspoken one anyway, but I've realized how much better I could do. Mm. Because it's the, the things you don't think about until it's presented to you. And um, you did it in such a thoughtful way that there's not shame mm-hmm. and it's not a mm-hmm. you're doing this wrong and I think this this kind of overlaps a lot with being an ally in both the LGBTQ community and also um, with with um, the BIPOC community, where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times we, um, as cisgender, I'm a heterosexual <laughs> uh, yeah. white woman, that mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel so much shame, no matter how hard I try to be an ally. Mm. Mm. And it's yeah. not in, it's not intentional, and I know it's more about me than it is about anything else. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, the way you presented that information really assuaged some of that shame and that stigma from the other mm-hmm. side, and made me made me aware and thoughtful, without making me feel like I have done something wrong for the last forty years of my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that means a lot to me that it landed on you that way, and I think I'm I'm really thankful that you said that. And also I tried to be very 
transparent about my own work that I have done and continue to do. And Mm -hmm. I will credit a lot of that to an amazing woman and activist um, who I quote in the book, Renee Bracey Sherman, who started an organization called We Testify. That's about the leadership of people who've had abortions and telling their stories publicly. And she really challenged me to think about this. So I'm really thankful for her guidance as I was starting to write to really go, okay, what was my journey um, where I had to interrogate my own internalized stigma and how I continue to do that. So I hope that in that way, it's invitational to be part of that, that we, we don't all, we aren't all just born knowing this stuff. Like it's okay to be on the journey, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we just want to do better, want to learn more. And I'm in the same boat, you know, and I hope in 10 years I read this book and go, Ooh, I wish I had said, <laughs> you know, right. Cause that means right. I've grown. Right. Yeah. And I grew up in a, uh, in the middle conservative slash liberal form of Wesleyanism, the Nazarenes. Um, so not oh, quite, yeah. not quite the Wesleyan part but not quite the Methodist either, though problems that they have as well, um, but with <laughs> Wesleyan theology. Um, and it's it's a really interesting denomination because on one hand, it was founded very clearly on social justice and um, uh, ministering to the poor and to the drug addicted and to the, uh, the outcast. However, through the, um, through the century of its, um, existence so a little over a century uh that has been lost a lot um and mm-hmm. also each congregation has their own kind of story of how to be a nazarene um and so uh i definitely got that yeah i i mean i was never a um at the uh clinic protester however as a kid um, we did participate in beside the side of the main road in our town, holding up signs protesting abortion. Um, mm. And I, um, it, I mean, I don't think that I have completely deconstructed that. I don't think that's something that you ever necessarily do, but I have come a very long way. And yeah, it, there have been uh, family members of mine who have had the option to get an abortion because early on in their wanted, well, in their wanted, but unexpected, I guess, (laughs) like uh, pregnancy, um, found out that the baby was going to have, like if the baby had um, survived the pregnancy would have multiple physical disabilities and possible, um, possibly other um, uh, psychological disabilities as well. And the, and I, I wish a book like this was available then um, mm-hmm. back what that would have been about. I mean, about 15 years ago um, mm-hmm. to if if maybe for her, but also for me, truly for me to read this and see that either decision would have been OK. Like I was mm-hmm. I think she knows that I would have supported her whatever she decided. Um, and mm-hmm. at that point, I was like, I have a degree in biology. I was already through like, so like, I, I know the science behind it. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, but I, at that point I still hadn't, I, I still hadn't really started completely deconstructing the, um, the damage that is done to people, uh, based on abortion stigma. Um, mm-hmm. and that I don't know. I mean, I think, I think she made the decision she made out of her own um, free will, 
but I also still wonder if if she fully did because I know what how she was raised as well. She was raised just like me. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Hard to sort all of those things out when the messages are so deeply entrenched. And mm-hmm. that was something that came up a lot as I was talking to people in the aftermath, even if they no longer participated mm-hmm. in any faith tradition, some of the messages that they heard, whether in their own faith traditions or just in living in this culture yeah. were coming up for them yeah. and causing them to have some doubts about their decision. So I think mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to sort all of that out because we don't we don't live in a bubble. We're all impacted right. by the messaging and you know, whether or not we personally believe them, it's hard to ignore them. And they're mm-hmm. they're very violent. Um, so I'm yeah, I think we could all I think we could all learn more how to hold space for people as they're making these kinds of decisions right. and give them more support. I think that that's what everybody needs. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least that's what I've heard from most people who've been making that decision mm-hmm. is they felt isolated. They wish they had had more support, mm-hmm. um, wish they had had more spaces that they knew they could go in and be received without judgment. Yeah. I think, you know, I think people are perfectly capable of making that decision completely on their own. Mm-hmm. However, if they want support, it should be available, mm-hmm. you know, and we all have to learn how to do it. And it's clunky. It's just like, I think we were kind of referencing this when you start talking about your whiteness, mm-hmm. it's really awkward and we make mistakes, but you learn. And right. I think it's the same with talking about this issue in a human way is it's going to feel weird. It's going to, your stuff's going to come up, but the more you practice, the better you get at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the more you practice, like not, not taking things personally or not taking things like to the extreme, like when we talk about three white women, um, not when someone, a, a friend of ours of color calls out something in our behavior, not to take, not to get defensive, but to take it, take it in and think through it and, um, integrate that into your it's behavior. A gift. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. If someone it's is willing to tell you what your behavior is doing to them or to other people, that is a gift that they are still comfortable enough with you to tell you and not just and not just let you be. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I know that mm-hmm. uh, from my perspective, if someone is being just ridiculous and I don't have a good relationship with them, I'm just going to like write them off. So like, yeah, if I'm going to say something to you, it means that I actually value our relationship. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, the style of the book is so, uh, so much more approachable to than um, a lot of the, the other abortion discussion books. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We have been searching and researching and uh, looking for less politicized, for lack of a better term, books on abortion for our library because mm-hmm. we do have, because of where we live, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the bulk of the books tend to be, like the, the ones that tend to be a little pro-choice are still more pro-life than pro-choice. <laughs> and I think your your book fits nicely in the center of this discussion because it humanizes the the internal struggle as well as the external struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the, the, the story that resonated, and I apologize, it did not finish it. I've been trying to read it at work while I have free minutes. You I don't need to apologize have, for that at all. <laughs> have far few of, but it was the story, um, and I can't remember what name you had attributed but it was the woman who had the two boys one Mm. of which had incredible medical difficulties 
And by the time the third came around, the whole just the thought of having to go through everything that they went through with number one and then with number two. Yeah. That the toll that it took on her physically. Mm-hmm. I know that that's the story that gets missed a lot in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, is the though it's a surprise, it is a wanted pregnancy. However, the detriment to maternal health is just as high as it is to fetal health. And mm-hmm. and her story about, you know, how they've had to hide this from their immediate family is yeah. heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I went through this with a friend of mine uh, almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives in Utah, and mm-hmm. abortion access is not good <laughs> in mm-hmm. Utah. Um, mm-hmm. She ended up having to drive north just over the border to I I am really bad at geography. Isn't that wouldn't that be Wyoming though? <laughs> I think it's, it depends on which which side she was I guess on. so. She anyway, had to drive she, a long she, way. Yeah. Yeah. Um out of state. To, to find a clinic mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. even see her. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. they still had the mandatory you come, you have a counseling session, yep. you go home, uh-huh. and then we'll follow up with you in a week. Oh, gosh. Wow. Just and the, the time it, and the expense of that. And if you still feel like you need to go through with this, and I, I talk to her every day, and this was, we, we have, we've known each other for a long time, but this is probably what made us as close as we are now, because I was the only person she could think of that she could even say any of this out loud to. Um, wow. And I told her that I was willing to drive to Utah. It's really not that far. Um, And she said no. And she ended up doing this by herself. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I had known that there were people out there who who were willing to sit with her in her own community. Mm. Um, But when she brought this up with a doctor, not her doctor, she went and made an appointment with a doctor who was not her doctor where she lives in eastern Wyoming, or uh, eastern Utah. Um, and as soon as she even, like, started to hint that that was the direction she was going, the doctor shut her down. Wow. Well. And she still, I don't think anyone besides me, and I think one of her sisters knows. Mm-hmm. Because her her partner is, even though he's an ex-Mormon, he still holds on to a lot of the Mormon ideals. Oh, yeah. His family is still very involved in the Mormon church. Her yeah, parents so. are, are mm-hmm. very conservative Lutherans. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, she's in her late 30s and will have to hold on to this by herself mm-hmm. is one of the most unfair parts of female reproductive journeys. And mm-hmm. the fact that you have given dignity um, and validity two stories that have felt like they got sweeped under the rug is an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that, I hope that this book finds its way into the hands of not only those women, but their families, mm-hmm. because it is a gift to be able to learn how to understand that even though it's not your journey, you, you need to support your person's journey or someone else's journey mm-hmm. because they deserve that respect. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm not I'm not going to cry today, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> this book this book makes a lot of people cry. Yeah. I mean, I think and I appreciate both of you sharing different 
journeys that you've been on with other people you love and care for and how you've seen some of the things I talk about, what Mm -hmm. the real, what the real life impact is, you know, and I think for people to understand, like, no matter where you stand politically, this is the reality. Mm -hmm. This is what, this is what people you love go through, whether Mm -hmm. or not, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it, it's happening. It impacts all of us, regardless of our need for an abortion or not. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that if we can really go from like a heart centered place about this and, and stop being so much in our talking points, Mm-hmm. that there really can be healing for a lot of people, you know? And I think that that's really what I want is just to have these kinds of conversations. And I'm realizing just writing this book is going to invite people to share their stories mm-hmm. and that in and of itself, like us just talking about it is radical. Yeah. Cause absolutely. it doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me so sad to hear, you know, just in our conversation, like the two people you've talked about represent millions of people. Mm-hmm who feel like they can't talk about their experience and how Mm -hmm. isolating that is and just builds on whatever feelings they already have about it. It just adds that layer um, of shame and silence and stigma. Um, And to think that they're going to have to carry it for the rest of their lives. My hope is that they they won't have to, Mm -hmm. that somehow there will be a space for them. And I think that's part of the call too in the book is to say, how do we start doing that internal work so that we can create rituals, spaces, conversations for people, mm-hmm. if they feel like they need to, to be able to talk about their experience and have it held mm-hmm. in a way that's compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated about the book too, is, um, the talk of, um, the organizations that are out there helping, doing, helping as much as they can. Um, there was one, the, um, it was, Jade something. It was about the, the organization that helps minors to, yeah. um, to work through the system, the court system so that they can get a a deferral of having to have parental consent to get an abortion. And yeah, Jane's due process, which is in Texas. And they are working as hard as you can imagine right yeah. now, along with other reproductive justice groups, but yeah, they, they are saints, honestly, Mm -hmm. the work that they do to accompany, think about being 16, 17 years old, Mm -hmm. not having a good relationship with your parent or parents Mm -hmm. needing an abortion and being told you're going to have to go plead your case in front of a judge who's going to decide whether or not you can get one. I mean, that is what young people are being asked to do. Mm -hmm. It's so on the one hand, it's so paternalistic, and think right. about how, what of a, a grown up mature experience that is. Holy mm-hmm. crap. Mm-hmm. I, that terrifies me. The idea of doing that. I'm 38 years old and that sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. can't imagine being a young person. So yeah, Jane's due process helps get legal counsel mm-hmm. for these young people. Um, and they are honestly just doing the real, the real mm-hmm. work. And I'm sure there yeah. are other organizations like that around the country because the, um, parental consent laws are pretty ubiquitous. They're mm-hmm. some version of that in almost every single state. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to look up who is doing that here in Oklahoma. Cause I know I'm sure parental consent laws are a thing here. We, we do a lot of things that Texas does. And then there's some other yeah. things that are worse, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, reading about that. I'm like, well, I feel like that's where, like a place where I can, donate money or time or whatever I can, because I know uh, this is something, I mean, advocacy that I've wanted to get into 
Um, I don't have a lot of free extra money, but what I have, I can give. And then if, um, um, whatever time I can give to, um, but yeah, I would recommend for our listeners, um, if that's something that's inter- uh, of interest to you, look up a local organization that, that's doing that and um, uh, get involved. Yeah. Um, Donate to so, your abortion fund in your yeah. state or your community. Those are really the best mm-hmm. places to give where that's really going to go toward like your, t- your friend who had to travel across straight mm-hmm. lines, mm-hmm. people who need help with the money to do that. Abortion funds are the ones coordinating a lot of that care. Yeah. So I would definitely look them up. You can go to the National Network of Abortion Funds, NNAF, if you're in the U.S., and you'll find the one that's in your state. Sometimes there are more than one. And I think that's another piece I think that gets missed in this conversation, too, is we're all familiar with Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's good and it's bad. Um, They advocate and they do a great job. But there's there are pieces that they don't do or can't do. And then finding the organizations that fill in those gaps. Right. But not knowing that these gaps exist, (laughs) I I think is where the conversation needs to go and quickly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Independent clinics for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Do a lot of, of care provision and full disclosure, the, Planned Parenthood president, Alexis McGill Johnson, wrote the forward to the book. Yes, yeah. yeah, she did. <laughs> and I am on PPFA's clergy advocacy board. So I am, awesome. I very much work with them, but I also work with Whole Women's Health and other yeah. independent providers. So I think it is, yeah, really important to get educated on who in your local community or in your state mm-hmm. or region is providing that care um, mm-hmm. because they don't all have the same resources yeah. as Planned Parenthood does. Mm-hmm. But we need everybody. We need all of them right. doing right. well. Well, and even you know, depending on your area, your Planned Parenthoods aren't even well funded. Because mm-hmm. uh, we don't. The new nearest one to us, I think, is Denver, because I don't think the one in Greeley, where I used to live, is operational anymore. Mm-hmm. They, I think, were pushed out of the community, and it's mm. a college town. Oh Oof. wow! So you think about where those college kids are going for their reproductive health of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and luckily Fort Collins isn't far, um, and it is more liberal but the fact that the small very small uh planned parenthood clinic next to the little caesars um got forced out of a community Mm -hmm. um is horrifying it is because they just provide basic health care for so many people and and that's the thing that no one gets is the basic health care part of this conversation too Mm -hmm. um and i think that again because it's so politicized that they help to give reproductive health care to the underserved part of the community, too. I know that's where the bulk of our college students got their birth control. For sure. And STI screenings, all kinds of things. Because it didn't go on their parents' health insurance. They weren't getting it through <laughs> exactly. us. I, I worked at a, doc, a family practice office at the time who did okay. a lot of birth control. A lot of birth <laughs> control. Uh but we had so many kids who came from homes that their parents didn't want them on birth control. So if they got it through us, mom and dad would find out because it would be on their explanation of benefits. Mm-hmm. And they're doing the most responsible thing. Mm-hmm. But yet the stigma around sexuality is all tied in with this, too. Mm-hmm. So they would go to and not two- trusting young people. Yep. To make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And even like when we would recommend they would have pap smears over 21 and they're like, oh, my I, my mom said I can't have one of those until uh, I'm older. And we're like, but this is basic health care. 
Right. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, if you call Planned Parenthood and have it done there, they have sliding scale. They can help you out financially and it will not show up. But you know that you are actually taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just to think if someone voluntarily wants to get a pap smear and, <laughs> yeah. right, and they're not because they're afraid. I mean, that is a responsible young person. We, mm-hmm. we, have we need few. to be encouraging that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And to be fair, there are more out there than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. For um, sure. But it was like, sure. we, we did, we had a few who came from devoutly religious families mm-hmm. who their parents were like, it, it is an act of sexual intrusion and you cannot have this done. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is something else. Mm-hmm. I see the logic. Yeah, I do. It, it's Are they also anti-tampons too? I mean. Yes. Okay. So. So you have no right to actually understand how your anatomy works or anything. Right. Exactly. That that is the scariest part Mm -hmm. of of working in healthcare was listening to adult women, Mm -hmm. women over the age of 35, have no idea how their reproductive system worked and they've had children. Oh, yeah. So then when you have a problem, how do Mm -hmm. you... How do you talk about it? Or how do you know if you have a problem? Yeah, I was going to say, how do you identify if it's even a problem? And it is a shift that we are seeing now, generationally for sure, between Mm -hmm. um, even Gen X and millennials. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, yes, because the HPV vaccine exists, Mm -hmm. but also because body autonomy and awareness is far more prevalent among younger millennials as opposed to older millennials. because I sit in that generational shift. Uh, <laughs> I'm an old millennial too. Same. We're, we're like, I'm a year or maybe not even that older than you. I'm 39 right now. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I sit right in that cusp of that weird zennial generation. And I actually think that applies to me more. But mm-hmm. um, like in this conversation, like younger millennials versus older millennials mm-hmm. and their awareness and ability to identify problems. and being okay with coming in to have problems checked out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know is also part of the reduction in uh, cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these these younger millennials were at a point where the HPV vaccine was optional for them, mm-hmm. and then they turned 18, came into our clinic, and went, I want this because I know it's the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. That is, you know what, it is nice to hear something good. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear something good about reproductive health, even if even if anecdotal. It is. <laughs> I have a seven year old daughter too. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and honestly, like, and we are definitely talking. We're all the stuff is interconnected. But even just mm-hmm. giving her the right language, like we started using yes. the word vulva with her before she could talk because it was more about my own comfort with saying yeah. it. Yeah. So for her, she's just like, that's always been her vulva. She doesn't know anything different. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people don't even have that language? No, they just say vagina and they right. vagina yeah. refers to the entire housing and, and internal workings. Right. And the vagina is <laughs> really very just specific. This, it's it's a tube, piece, right? It's here. only a tube. <laughs> like, really. Everything else is not that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One piece of it. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, and, and I know I'm guilty of it too, that I'm just, that, in jest, I say it a lot, and I'm like, I need to be more aware of my own language, even mm. even when I'm joking around about things, mm. because it's important to use correct terminology 
for everyone's health and well-being. Um, and who knows, you might be the only person in your friend's life who knows the correct terminology and anatomy. Mm-hmm. And you might teach them something that they need to know and then can take back to their doctor and say, I have this problem with this. And being able to specify exactly where the problem is, is so much more helpful than saying, um, I have this thing down there. Yeah, absolutely. And again, all this is interconnected because it's about the fact that we don't have a whole lot of practice mm-hmm. in having these kinds of conversations where we deal with our discomfort around whatever it is, get over ourselves and start doing the hard work of like actually being honest and open. And whether it's about abortion or sexuality or childbirth or whatever it is, you know, so much of that work happens within our closest relationships. And so I think you're right that we never even might not even think about the way that we might talk about something can either be an invitation to someone to come in and ask a question or to share something or can signal that I'm not a safe person Mm -hmm. to talk about this with. And I think you're so right. Like, so around abortion specifically, how do we start talking about it? Well, let's start talking about it, Mm -hmm. but then also in a way that invites people to share about it because you'd be surprised. I feel like anytime I'm in a group of women or people with uteruses, but generally it's like cisgendered women. Um, I start talking about my work and like, people will just say like, oh yeah, I've had an abortion Mm -hmm. and it might be the first time they've ever talked about it. Mm -hmm. And then the next person will share like it, it, it's, it's people want to tell Mm -hmm. their stories. Mm -hmm. They do. They're just waiting for a space to be able to do it. Yeah. Somewhere that's safe. And we are a people of storytellers. I mean, humanity is all about stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that women have had to sit on theirs for so long, mm-hmm. Pe- people with uteruses have had mm-hmm. to sit on theirs. Thank you for for giving that differentiation, because that's one that I am not great with. I'm working on it, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All work in progress. Um, <laughs> that, that these are it, these are such integral parts of our stories as a people. Mm-hmm. And yes. we've been dismissed for so long that it's time that we write our stories down. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, Katie, we know that you are um, on to your next thing. Um, So uh, how can our um, listeners get in contact with you, follow you um, and uh, purchase your book? Yes. So um, you can find me on all the socials. I'm Mm -hmm. at Katie Zay. And I guess you all will link to that. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also check out my organization, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, where RCR Choice on all the socials. You can buy A Complicated Choice anywhere books are sold. The publisher is Broadleaf. Um, if you want to support um, an independent publisher or a smaller publishing house um, mm-hmm. or, you know, all the other places you can buy books. And the official launch date is the 15th of February. Which when this releases, that is in a day or two, I guess. So Yay. this week. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this week. <laughs> nice. and, and Katie is definitely on Twitter because that is how I found her. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> well, I found your book in a list of suggested books through the company we buy books for at the library. Um, oh, that's great to hear. And then I started digging around as to who you were, um, how to find you. And here we are. And here we are. I'm so glad you found me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have a website too, katiezay.com. You can send me an email that way if anybody exactly. wants to be in touch. <laughs> and that is exactly how we met. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> exactly. Well, I just appreciate both of you and the community that you've created and having these conversations and 
being so open with me about your own stories in this Mm -hmm. time, like that is very sacred to me. And I, I hope that maybe there are some people listening who really needed to hear this conversation, whether it's their own experience or the experience of the person that they love. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that people find some healing, even just in listening to this conversation. Absolutely. Agreed. Well, thanks, Katie. Thank you. Twisted Sisters is now part of the Wild Goose Goosecast Network, a network of faith-based podcasts discussing issues of inclusion and social justice. To learn more about the Wild Goose Festival, go to wildgoosefestival.org. Natalie Wells edited this episode. Our theme song was written by Michael Basinger and it was performed by Key and Nuts. The closing music was created and performed by Andy Moore and the transition music by Sean Ose. Our artwork was done by Cheyenne Davis of Shays Designed. You can contact her at davischeyenne.com to do your graphic design project. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Twisted Sisters and on Facebook as Twisted Sisters Podcast. And share the magic by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash twistedsisters. 